Welcome to Mommy's on a Call, your sacred space to laugh, learn, and feel like a real grown-up human for a hot minute. I'm Stephanie Uchima Carney, a mom of three under six, serial entrepreneur, business strategist, and donut connoisseur, just trying to get through the day one cold cup of coffee at a time. I believe that with more intention, a positive mindset, and self-care, it is possible to thrive in motherhood, business, and life. My mission is to uncover the daily rituals, life lessons, real-life tactics, and favorite tools to inspire and empower you, mommy, to get the most out of life every single unpredictable day. So grab your headphones, tell your kids you're on the potty, and tune in weekly for some laughs, knowledge bombs, and plenty of real talk with real moms, and maybe a dad or two. Welcome to the Mommy Pod. Welcome back to Mommy's on a Call. Today, I'm excited to bring on Sarah Peck because we literally were supposed to record this about a year ago, and then I got sick, I had a baby, COVID hit, so many things happened, but it couldn't have come at a more perfect time because I think the universe really wanted us to talk about what we're talking about today, which is so much in the world has changed for working women, for working moms, and just motherhood in general. So welcome, Sarah. I'm so glad to be here. And yes, I mean, it's kind of emblematic of the whole year, right? Like it took us a year <laughs> to get this done. That feels that just feels like the story of 2020. Uh, it took a year. Exactly. And I think we started talking about this, like when we both had still kind of infants, but like almost one-year-olds. And then all of a sudden now we have full of blown toddlers and everything. <laughs> oh yeah. I got the two. I got the two-year-old now and he's got opinions for sure. Yes. Well, I wanted to start off with what was your mom win of the week? And it could be a win for just you, win in parenting, whatever it is. Just what's a Sarah win for the week? Oh, that's such a good question. Like such a good frame. I honestly, it might be like I... This morning I got up and I made a six pound pot roast. So I'm making a, like a pulled pork because I try to make things in batches. So like we've got, you're going to eat coleslaw for days, everyone. Coleslaw, pulled pork sandwiches. Like our, our meals are set for the next seven days. That's amazing. So give us just a little bit of background about your family structure, how many kids you have, ages, and like, what's your husband's role? Yeah. So I'm married in a heterosexual partnership with my husband, Alex, and he took my last name. Fun fact. So he's now Alex Peck. Yeah. I haven't changed my last name, which it was his idea and I couldn't find a compelling reason to go against it. So I was like, fine, you can take my last name. We've got two kids. We've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, Leo and Henry. And, and that's it. We, we are finished having children, although I would like to have a third. Um, my husband, we entered our partnership and he was like, I would like to have no kids. And I was like, I would like to have two or three kids. So I feel like we've arrived at a really, really fun and good compromise. Yeah. I think it's, <laughs> I mean, whatever works for, for you. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we kind of wanted to, we ended up with three, but I could never imagine my, I guess, life with, you know, of course not. Like yes. It's just, yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. And like, it, I think it's so interesting because had you asked my 20 year old self, I would have told you a definitive plan. And now my 37 year old self, you asked me, I'm like, oh boy, good luck planning. Like it's just, you never, you don't, it's so complicated. And, and I interview women who go through parenting and pregnancy for a living kind of like you. So I've talked to so many people where I know that you can make plans and that's a nice planning tool. And then there's also all the rest that happens too. Exactly. I mean, our first two were planned. They were like legitimately, my husband said, your uterus is broken. And so when we had a third, (laughs) 
it was like a surprise. I had an 11 month old. And then all of a sudden I was like, she's not really nursing. I think she just doesn't want milk anymore. I'm not really sure what's going on. Flash forward seven weeks and it was, oh, you're actually pregnant. And my husband literally said, I thought your uterus was broken. And I said, I thought so too. I'm really confused. <laughs> we spend all this time in our life trying to like not get pregnant for in your 20s. Then in your 30s, you spend all of this money and time trying to get pregnant. Yeah. And then finally, when it happens, you're so excited. And then you finally give up and then boom, it's just so weird. It's so many different stories. My cousins are twins and this was, they're a couple years older than me. So they're born in the late seventies. So much has changed. They didn't have ultrasound technology like even 40, 50 years ago. They didn't, she didn't know she was having twins. Oh my goodness. So she had a five pounder and a six pounder. And so in the delivery room, she was like, like one of the babies came out and the doctor tells her right then, oh, there's another one in there. (laughs) Can you imagine if that happened today? (laughs) We do ultrasounds like every two weeks. Like we want so much data and information. And imagine if you were pregnant and you're like, I, you couldn't tell if there was one or two in there. world has changed. Oh my goodness. So I digress. So I wanted to talk about, so Sarah has an amazing podcast, which is startup parent. It used to be called startup pregnant, but it's now startup parent. You do so much with working moms with just this whole industry. Give us a little bit of background about what your company is all about and your mission. Yeah. So startup parent. Thank you. It's a, yeah, we just changed our name over the summer. It started as startup pregnant when I was pregnant, working at a startup in Manhattan. And now we are focused on building community for working parents. So we have a nine month council that meets every year. It's called the wise women's council. We invite women in, we go super deep. Like we have conversations that are incredible. Today, we're talking all about taboo sex topics, which is going to be really fun, including like differences in libido and like how to experiment with your partner and all. We, we just go there. We go there on all topics. I love that. I really wanted to do a sex conversation on the podcast yes. and <laughs> all it. the women that I asked were like, yes, wait, I don't want my name attached to it. I'm like, <laughs> no. But like sex after having kids too is such like an important conversation. And like, I feel like you're right. It's taboo. We just don't talk about it. And with my mom friends, once we started talking about it, it was like, wow, how do you get to do it twice a week? Like, I thought that was a myth, like all of this stuff. And so that's, that's incredible. It's good. So we'll have, well, that's one of the conversations we get to have in the Wise Women's Council. And then we also have these free calls for parents to just come and like, let it out, right? And talk to other parents. And so that's our that's our core. Startup Parent is all about connecting people in conversation and community because the underlying mission is to create change. And I think that when you connect to new ideas and you connect to new people, that creates the ingredients for change. And I have more that I want to do with this company. I have big dreams and big visions, but that's our foundation right now. Where were you before you had your first kid then? So you said you started this because you became pregnant yeah. at a startup. So what was your pre-mommy life? I got a degree in psychology and then I got a graduate degree in architecture. And I went and I did landscape architecture and regional planning for five years, which is a long and far distant cry from where my career turned and twisted over the following 10 years. The very short condensed version is that I ended up doing marketing and communications for the architecture company. I started speaking and teaching. I built my online platform. And then from there, joined a startup in Manhattan. 
uh, around 29 years old. And then when I was third, just at the end of my 30th year, was I 31? Oh, I don't know. In there, I got pregnant and I was pregnant working at a venture backed startup in Manhattan with, we had 13 team members. I, I was six person. We had 13 team members, 30 contractors. And I felt so alone. Like I looked around and I was like, where are the women in tech? Where are the pregnant women in tech? Why am I like one of the only people that has a family? Do people who have families, can they survive? Like, what do I need to know? Also that small of a company doesn't provide any paid leave or leave at all. And they don't have to legally in the United States. So I had to convince the co-founders to figure out a, a maternity and parental leave policy. I had to write the policy myself. Like I had to set it all up and Walking down the streets of Manhattan, I was like, start up pregnant. This is insane. Like, this is really tough. So I started interviewing other women, which became the foundation for a book and a podcast and then this project. That's incredible. What made you then eventually leave the startup world to just hone in on what you're doing now? Yeah, it just felt, it felt so important to me. And this is, it feels like kind of tangential, but the reason I left was because I had uh, put a book proposal together to write about the experience. And the agent was like, we really like this. Can you work on it? And so I told the co-founders, I said, Hey, like we're at this inflection point. We've grown enough. You, you all are taking it forward. We've hired a bunch of people. And I think I'm going to go try to write this book for the next year. So they were like, Hey, we know that you've wanted to write a book since forever. Go work on that. And in the process of trying to work on the book proposal, I accidentally interviewed so many people, decided to start a podcast, realized with a child under one living in Manhattan that I couldn't take on another unpaid free project. So I reached out to sponsors for the podcast. We got $30,000 in sponsorships for the podcast. And I looked at my husband and I was like, honey, I think I started a company. <laughs> I, think I, got around, I think I got some taxes to pay. <laughs> You're like the accidental startup parent. Totally, totally. And I was like, oh, now this is a company. Well, if this is a company, what would it do? Like what's its mission and what would it do? And because I'd worked in startups before and consulted, I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. Wow. So what has been kind of like over the years, what have you seen grown at least in the startup world? And how has also your company evolved? Like how did you get to be now startup parent from startup practice? Oh, good question. Well, it, part of it is, I could talk to you about this for hours, but I look a lot at big systems and systemic inequality, racism, structural sexism, all of the different pieces that kind of combine to create the culture and the world that we live in. And so I, I zoom back and I look at the big picture. And so looking at the way we talk about motherhood, about what it means to be a woman, uh, anti-mom bias, and all of the things that affect women in the workplace, I was like, oh, I don't know if I am doing a service to my audience and to the change I seek to make in the world if I only have these conversations with women, for women, by women. Like if we keep having these conversations in a women's only space, we're going to get in trouble because we're not going to be bringing all the parents that need to have the conversation together. Because part of the things we need to do to change what the home life looks like is to have co-partners, all genders, men, fathers, like them inside of the conversation, because we can't just take on more emotional and physical labor and try to push forward and do it all and lean in. That's not going to work. We need like structural systemic change. So that I said, well, I can't call it pregnant also because not everyone who has kids starts out by being pregnant, right? 
True. There's plenty of people who have kids that are wanted and needed and necessary in the parenting conversation. And if I just focus on pregnancy, that's only one, one angle. So we widened our lens to kind of incorporate what we do, which is to try to talk to all parents. And so I guess talking to parents, what are like, if you can give my audience, a lot of my audience are moms with, you know, young kids and stuff who are career moms, either career or entrepreneurial how can they go about navigating this environment today? It's such a different environment. We're seeing so much come out with the like systemic racism. I mean, trying to make systemic change because, you know, being anti-racist, all of the feminism stuff. How can we talk to parents today about this? And how can we also talk to our employers and just start that conversation? Because when you said something about you know, if we only talk within our groups, I had this vision of like a knitting circle where all you're doing is bitching and gossiping and you can't make change if no one else knows your problems. It's kind of like when we talk to our girlfriends about like, my husband did this, but like, unless you talk to your husband, like nothing can change. So how can we start this conversation outside of our circles? Yes. Okay. So such a good question. And like, and something I'm chewing on in myself as I try to try to tackle this, but I have had so many people write back to me about the podcast, the startup parent podcast, about a third of them are not parents. So they are people of younger generations that are just, they want to know, like, what do I have to do to plan ahead for the world we're going to enter? And then I have fathers who write to me and say, wow, I didn't really, I didn't really get it. And I think part of the problem is When you get to the microscopic level of like you and your husband, if you are a heterosexual female and you identify as a wife and a husband partnership, if you are in that context, I don't think we hear each other very well because we're so busy and so overwhelmed and the nuclear family is so strapped. And this isn't even, this doesn't even dig into the fact that like 40% of households are headed by single women right? Like a tremendous number of families in the United States don't even have heterosexual partnerships. So like all the single women out there who are listening and giving me the middle finger, deservedly so. (laughs) Thank you for that. I can take your anger. I (laughs) I will channel it into good things. But there's, there's single moms out there. There are people in different styles of families. I hate the word traditional family. So one of our missions is to tell the full range of stories, what motherhood looks like and what parenting looks like. So how do we do this? Number one, tell the truth. Number two, step back, right? Step back, look at the whole context. Don't place the blame on those two individuals in that relationship, the husband and the wife. And I think one of the key elements to making change in the future is going to be when a husband hears stories from other wives and a wife hears stories from other husbands. And we'll finally hear the story and then be able to see our own relationships anew and say, oh, wow, I was in conversation with so many women at this parenting circle I was with, and they are all struggling so much because their husbands don't help out. I wonder, am I doing that to my wife, right? I think we can see things anew when we see ourselves mirrored in other people's stories, as long as we take a wider lens and we stop getting so microscopic. Right. And then how can we translate that too into our, I guess, parenting and raising our kids to kind of not see this like whole traditional world? Yeah. So this, this idea of a traditional family, like we can start to break it down and really understand where it comes from. And it's, it's a confluence of some incredible events. So most families did not follow a quote unquote traditional structure. There were lots and lots of different structures, but starting in, if you look at the United States at a specific moment in time in the early 20th century, so world war one ish, 
we start to have the rise of, this is just post-industrial. I'm going to give some history. Post-industrial, we have men starting to leave the home to go to these outside jobs. We have the rise of like office jobs and, and things that where people go to work. So the woman starts to take on the role of a homemaker, right? The homemaker role was not individually doled out to women more than a hundred or so years ago. Fast forward a few years, 1940s, 1950s, you start to see the rise of television. We captured the iconic Leave it to Beaver moment on television in our collective cultural imagination and memory. So what we see is we all have this visual image of something that we then project backwards in time and believe that, ah, that's what a family is supposed to look like. It's a white woman in Levittown, America, where they have a single family home and she gets her own mop and she gets to clean and she loves it. In pearls too, nonetheless. In pearls and (laughs) heels. Look what she baked. And then we have the rise of advertising and they're just talking about all this and they're like, mommy's going to be really happy if the mop is purple. And you're like, no, look at how many people in the 1960s, like how many mothers were like taking heroin for a reason. (laughs) They hated it. (laughs) So now instead of you being in the traditional, you know, job, like, you know, job role, you are now an entrepreneur. How are you using that to model to your children? Oh, such a good question. I mean, so I would say that my husband is like a little bit more than an equal partner. He does more than I do. Like if anyone has the husband role, it's me. I'm so, I feel so guilty saying that out loud because I might get some more middle fingers, like driving down like rage fists. But, but like when I read Eve Rodsky's book about fair play and Tiffany love that book. book, it's such a good book, right? I just, I kept mapping things out and I was like, no, Alex does that. Nope, Alex does it. Nope, Alex does that, right? And my, my big shtick has been, I made them. You do it. <laughs> oh, like, I use that all the time. I was like, I've been pregnant and breastfeeding for six years. That's right. That's right. You can like, take out the trash. <laughs> and put them to bed and bathe them and take them to school. And and like he so it's not, it's there's no animosity. We really do divide things up very equally and we have incredible communication about how our household looks and runs. But when we had children, we both agreed on a work schedule. So we both work eight to four and we stop at four, which is kind of revolutionary in the world of work that like that hazily starts at 7 a.m. and then a lot of people go till 7 p.m. We have confined restricted work hours and he does the morning drop-off. He takes them to school. I do the afternoon drop-off. And then when they get home, we both have one hour to work out each. And then we swap who does the nighttime routine. And if one person is doing dinner, bed, and bath, then the other person, I guess it's bath and then bed. And then the other person is doing all the dishes, all the trashes, putting the house to bed, putting the toys away. And so we both work for an hour and a half on family stuff. So how did you start that conversation? Because I know a lot of parents say like, yes, that's great in theory. Like I've read Fair Play. I, you know, I'm going to create boundaries. But how do you start that conversation? Say when your co-parent might not be in that same mental space or might not believe in some of that. So how do you start that conversation? You know, that's going to be a tough one for me to answer because I have such a feminist husband who suggests most of these ideas that I don't actually know how, like, and I wish I did. So I want to be able to like say, yeah, here's how to like, to learn what my husband learned. I don't know where it came from and you probably have to interview him. So I can't take credit for starting a conversation like this. But I, what I will say is if you don't have an equal partner, you are in the majority of working women who are parents right now. 
it's just so lopsided. And two books I recommend that Eve Rodsky book, Fair Play, but also Darcy Lockman's book, All the Rage, gets into the nitty gritty of the data. And one of the things that happens is when a child is born, men take on about 30% more work, but women take on 70 to 80% more work. So men see a doubling of their workload and think they're contributing. Interesting. But they don't realize that women are taking on like two to three X what they are taking on. It's all about perspective. Yeah. And then also remember context, context, context. We live in a world in which the ideal worker is a single white man that where we like, like we actively reward men for working uh, to provide for their family, but we penalize women for it. We're swimming in an environment that says that men should be able to come home and then they worked a hard day. So they should have a beer and kick back their feet. And then the wife should be like, the wife should take care of everything for them. And we kind of need to call BS on that. Right. So in order to start the conversation, I want to tell people listening, you're not alone. It's not just you. This is a hard problem to solve, but it's also worth solving. And there are people who live in the future. I I guess that's what I would say. I live in the future. It works. Let's get there. Do you have ideas? Like, I don't feel free to pick my brain because I wish I could solve this for everyone. I want to kind of flash back in your life a little, just because you mentioned how you, you work from eight to four, right? About five months ago, were you working eight to four? Because <laughs> oh for those of you who haven't watched, Sarah documented like every single day of her quarantine experience in New York City, and it was fascinating. And so, I, a lot of women have maybe not gone back to your eight to four schedule. They might not have kids that were able to go back to school, back to childcare, comfortable with someone coming in their house and watching their kids. How did you manage during that time? And now, reflecting back, do you have any advice for women who might still be in that? Yes, this is such a good question. So, and what this brings up for me and what this reminds me is, I'm going to say it 10 times, (laughs) context, context, context. So I think one of the things that can be a a big trap is, and the pandemic has shown this so much, but this is pre-pandemic as well, is that we look at somebody else and we want to emulate what they're doing in their life without realizing that everyone's childcare situations, everyone's partnerships, everyone's individual energy is so different. And so I know so many women that are like, my business isn't growing very fast or I'm not doing enough. And I'm like, well, how's your childcare? And they're like, I don't have any. And I'm like, oh, okay. So you're doing your work in 10 hours a week. Great. That's your context, right? Don't compare that to me where I have 45 hours a week paid childcare, an equal partner, and I pay for a babysitter on the weekend, right? Like I'm, that's a different setup. So I, if you looked at that objectively, you would see like, oh yeah, I definitely expect if I had 10 hours a week, I would move at this pace. And if I had 45 hours a week, I would move four times faster. But one thing about that context though, is it aspires. So it's like, if Sarah can do, it has 45 hours, like what happens if I have 20 hours, I could do X more. So maybe I will outsource and hire a babysitter. Like, I think that's one thing that's like, even though about context, it gives people hope that there is something more that they can be doing. And, and so that's kind of what I'm also getting at is like, Reflect back and where, where could you have outsourced or where in your life did you need the most help? Yes, a hundred percent. And also I would say like, be honest and get clear on what you want. Because I think sometimes we look at other people like comparison is the thief of joy is that famous quote. And we look at other people and we're like, oh, like maybe I should be working 45 hours a week. And it's like, no, actually I love not working right now. Or I like the pressure is really about money or what is your context? What is your desire? Because maybe, 
maybe you have 20 hours a week of childcare and it's perfect for you because that's all you want to do. Or maybe you're really hungry for 60 hours a week of childcare because you missed your past life and you want to work and you don't really love parenting that much. Like permission for everyone who feels that way to feel that way. Like you're not wrong if you feel that way. If that's what you feel, that's what you want. That's a wonderful thing to have. Men everywhere are never judged for wanting to work 60 hours a week. So like go get it or 80 just to give everyone permission. And also if you're like, I want to, I want to build a business where I work 10 to 15 hours a week during nap times. And I get to hang with my kids the rest of the time, like full permission, just be honest about what you have, be honest about your boundaries and your constraints and get super clear on who you are and what you believe in and what you want, because it doesn't have to look like a corporate lawyer or a stay at home mom, if that's not what you want it to look like. So what did though your life oh, look yeah. like during the pandemic? The pandemic? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yes. So, oh boy, we got sick in the beginning of March, right? When this whole, like everything, it was like, oh, there's a big virus going around. And then we got sick and it was matching all of the symptoms. So we just shut down and we stayed home. We pulled our kids from daycare. I was like, I do not want to be the mom that like gives everyone this terrible virus. And so starting March 12th, I think it was Friday, March 12th, we were home. I think home. it was actually Friday the 13th. Friday because the 13th. I will never forget that. It was Friday okay. the 13th. Then Thursday the 12th, we stayed home. And that was their or that was their last day of school. And then the next day we were home. And they did not go back to daycare until the last week of August was when daycare opened again. So for six brutal, hellacious, long months, we were in a two-bedroom apartment with zero childcare, no family around, no backyard. And we were home. We were suddenly and instantly home. And our schedule, I'm an early riser. So I tend to wake up at five or 5.30. So I switched my alarm clock to four, which sounds really early for people, but it's an hour earlier than I used to wake up. And uh, I would work from four to seven. And we did a couple different schedules, but I I would work from four to 9 a.m. So I get five hours in. My husband would take the kids outside and he would try to just run them and run them and run them in a local park or just a field or balls. At one point we found like a pitcher's mound in the baseball field and they went and they like dug sand. It wasn't on the actual baseball field for baseball fans out there. It was off to the side. It was like the extra sand. And 9am we would switch. I would usually like sprint outside at 845 and like just tag high five my husband. And then I would stay out with them, try to keep them outside till 11 We'd come home and my husband would work from 9 a.m. to 12 because he has more client meetings than I do. From 12 to 1, we would both do everybody eats, everyone needs to eat, get the diapers on and put them down for naps, except the three and a half, the four year, three and a half turning four year old decided to stop taking naps. So I plugged him into an iPad. (laughs) I was like, you can have all the movies. Here's an iPad. Here's a second iPad. Here are headphones. Here's a free pass. Do whatever you want. So that he had iPad time for three hours. My blessed one and a half year old would sleep for three hours. That's incredible. It was amazing. I will thank him for the rest of his life for his long naps because not all children do that. So from one to four, pretty predictably, we had like the kids were on iPad and nap and then four o'clock wake up. My husband and I did four o'clock. One of us would work out five o'clock. The other would work out six o'clock was dinner time. Seven o'clock was bed and bath time. And that was it every day. Now, what does your morning routine say like the first hour of your day? So do you still wake up at four? Do you wake up at five? And what do you do in that morning time? You know, this, the, my, it, it changes every three months, right? Like parents will know this, but so over the last three months, I have been getting up between four 30 and five 30, a little bit later, but I still like that hour before the kids are awake. However, I'm trying to like, let go of the panic that I have. Cause I, I would wake up in a panic with all the work I had to get done. 
right? Like what during pandemic, I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to get this client thing done. And so I'm trying really hard to slow down a little bit in the mornings, but my four-year-old has decided to night train. So we did potty training, but now he wants to make it through the whole night. So he gets up at like 5.15 and he like runs out of his room and he's like, mama, look, I'm not wearing a diaper. I made it. The diaper's oh, dry. No. And I'm like, I'm like, this is mommy's alone time. And I'm like, great job, sweetie. <laughs> yeah. But what we do, what I, if he wakes up early, what I do is I, I'm like, it's still morning. Don't wake up your brother. Good job. All right, go pee on the potty. Okay, let's go cuddle. And then I'll pull him back into my bed. I don't take him into his, him and his brother's room. I pull him back into my bed so that we can like cuddle. And then I usually just sit there for 30 minutes um, snuggling with him. Oh, so I really like it. And it's, it's getting me to slow down a little, but I am, I'm like, can your bladder hold it one more hour? <laughs> Oh, I know. Our son would, I, it's the worst when they wake up and like they barge in your room. If you're still sleeping, they're like, I gotta go poo poo. I gotta go pee. And you're like, it's like four 30 in the morning. What is going on? It's like the worst way to wake up. That's right. If I'm still asleep, sometimes he comes into the room and then he just stands there like six inches from my face. He stare, he's like, but you can feel right. them. It's so creepy. And you're like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> totally get it. Which is why I'm still waking up at like 4.30 because I'd rather get up, do my morning pages, have a cup of coffee, like make my to-do list. Like it's just me and my brain for 30 minutes. And then he like walks into my office and I'm like, oh, hi, sweetie. Okay. Yeah. As opposed to that, wake up. Oh, I love you said you were doing morning pages. How long have you been doing that? Oh, this is my fourth time. So I'm doing Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. Yes. And so in trying to like ease out of the panic of the pandemic, the panic of the election, like all of the, like the news addiction. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do another cycle of the artist's way, but I do it by the way. I do it with as long as it takes. I don't stick to her schedule Three page or whatnot. Yeah. It's, yeah. I do as many pages as I can get done in a week. Do you handwrite or do you type? I do here. I can show you. So I actually bought her journal and she has, it's like a artist way notebook. I don't think this will be on video, but for people who are like, it's okay. this whole notebook. And so like, it's all, you can just see like that's incredible pages and pages of handwriting. But so he has 21 pages for each week and I don't do three pages and I don't finish the week in a week. So I just keep writing until the chapter is done. And if it takes me two weeks, it takes me two weeks. So is this kind of, I'm going to transition a little into self-care because you made this comment that you said, I (laughs) loathe self-care, but here's the thing. I consider doing morning pages or snuggling with your kid or whatever that is to fill you up the definition of self-care. So talk to me a little bit about your statement. I love self-care. What is your definition and why do you not like it so much? Okay. I love self-care and I love things that help you tap into your soul, your spirit, your wellness that replenish you, that nourish you. I do love the word take care because I want to take it for myself. I think that taking things that you need is not a selfish act, especially if you're taking it and it just creates abundance right? You're not taking it from someone. My morning pages don't take anything from anyone else. So I love it. I hate it when people use the term self-care in marketing, in advertising, or for basic biological needs. So whenever I see a meme out there that's like, Ooh, mommy's going to have a shower and have some self-care time. I'm like, screw that. A shower is not self-care. A shower is a basic human right and a necessity, like clean water, clean air. Like those things are fundamental. Don't tell me that eating a meal is self-care. Like, so I get really fed up when 
mothers in particular are so, or they're like, drink a bunch of wine, that's self-care. I'm like, hey, listen, it depends. That could be addiction and that could be self-care. We don't know how it makes you feel and whether or not it truly nourishes you. But when I see an advertisement out there or a company or a brand that's like, hey, you need to purchase this in order to get self-care, I'm out. I am so out of that. And I'm so sick of a capitalist, oppressive, patriarchal system full of toxic, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, (laughs) BS, that is telling me that my depletion that is not caused by me, and I'm speaking as a white woman here, so like, let me actually speak on behalf of people who are way more oppressed than I am because I have all the privilege in the world, but I'm so sick of people telling me that systemic oppression is something that I can solve with a little bit of self-care. No, the purple mop is not going to fix this bullshit environment that pays me less, that demands I do emotional labor, that asks way too much of black women and brown women and Asian women and people of color that like just systemically oppresses people. So that's where my clothing of the term comes from. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Just to get that clear. Thank you. Thank you. That made sense. So then what would you consider as self-care in your context? And what do you do for your quote self-care? Or what do you do to replenish yourself for, I, I forgot what you said. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, I love this. I love this. So for me, I'm introverted. I am probably a highly sensitive person an HSP typology. So like I need alone time and I need soul time. So journaling, morning pages, walks, I'm a very, I'm a very uh, loquacious introvert. I really love talking to people. So talking to people, like chats with my friends, I strive really hard to actually do most of my work between nine and two, but to take that first hour of the, you know, quote unquote work day from eight to nine to do stuff for me. And then from two to 4 PM to also on the days that I can do stuff for me, exercise, moving my body, journaling, talking to friends. So I have a standing invitation on my Calendly link for friends. Anyone can book a call with me at 3 p.m. That's incredible. Wow. I like that idea because it also gives you boundaries too of knowing like at 3 p.m. is when I can do this too. I I feel like a lot of also self-care is replenishing that like mental load that we take up. It's like your hard drive's always working. And so the self-care is really like that reboot. So I like that idea. Yeah, it's fun. And I also don't like, I think the boundaries of work, the concept of work, work is super broken, but the concept of work is, oh, it's going to be nine to five. Actually, it's going to be eight to five. Actually, it's going to be seven to seven. And it just keeps taking more and more from us at the same pay rate, stagnating wages. Like the work has not offered a better promise over the last 40 years. We're not, we're, we don't pension plans. We don't have like all this stuff that helps us in our future. So work instead of, you know, nine to five is now encroaching on those times. And I'm like, Hey, you're going to Swiss cheese the rest of my day and take for my weekend. I am going to scoop out a big ice cream size hole out of the middle of the day. Fair. <laughs> so on the other self-care side, even though, you know, we're talking moms, but on the dad's side, you said you give him an hour to work out and stuff like that. Do you talk to him about like time that he might need? And do you have that conversation? Yes. All the time. It's interesting because, so I think this is where some of the complexity comes in what each person needs is not the same. And so he needs more alone time than I do. Um, He's more introverted than I am, but I need more travel and friendship gatherings. So way back before we had kids, I would travel all over the place and I would drag him along to every single event. And we finally realized that our desired ratio was three to one. 
for every three events I went to, he wanted to go to one. And it just was a good rule of thumb. Like we start to create these shorthands in our partnership with, okay, I'm going to go to two events and then I'll invite you to the next one. Same for weekends. So in our family, we have a rule that like, we can't fill up all four weekends in a month. One of them has to be just the family being home, no birthday parties, no events. So if I filled up the other three, he's like, balance, you can't do that last one. And it's like a good metric for us for knowing what we need and want, but it is a constant conversation. It's not one that just it's just, it's like, we have it. And then it stops. We probably do it quarterly. Like every three months, there's like a attunement or an adjustment of, Hey, I like, I'm doing this huge work project and I need to work overtime right now. Can we get a babysitter every Saturday for four hours so that I can like do that work spillover that I really want to do? It's not a last minute urgent thing. We try to be intentional about it. That's good. Right now, I know you outsource your childcare. Is there anything else in your house that you outsource or to make your, I guess, life a little easier or work better? How about that? I think the, the fun, the like philosophy that's the most helpful is to stay as small as possible. Because if I have fewer bathrooms, there's fewer clean, there's less cleaning to do, right? If I have fewer dishes and fewer clothes, there's less laundry. So we have a lightly minimal approach to having as few things as we possibly need so that we don't like, I don't have to make another bed because there isn't one. We don't have a giant kitchen. So the counters are only so big. So we live pretty intentionally Goldilocks style, like just right, just the right amount. I still would like a backyard, but that's, you know, New York city makes that challenging, but I'm not mowing a lawn, blowing leaves. There's nothing I'm doing none of that. So it creates a lot of freedom. And then with the pandemic, we've reduced bath time to like every two days, sometimes twice a week. And we've, when they're home with us, we let them wear pajamas all day. So we'll have one outfit for 24 hours, which cut our laundry in half. So, you know, just trying to cut corners here in a way, because otherwise I'm like drowning in laundry and it's so boring. Yeah. That makes total sense. I love that. It's still good. Like, (laughs) I love how you said you're like Goldilocks. You live in the like just right. And I feel like it's, it's hard though for people. Cause you know, it's like, they want just more and more, but really yeah, less is more. So I wanted to wrap up with a couple final questions. The first one is what is your mom's superpower that you gained when you became a mom that makes you better in business? Ooh, saying no. Hmm. Yeah. And, and saying no, like early and often, I hate it when I get a, I send someone an email and it's like, oh, can you make it? And then there's like radio silence for three weeks. I am like that early no person where I'm like, ah, thanks for the invite. This sounds awesome. I can't make it. You know, that's it. And that's it. Cause then I just like constantly whacking back at the things and you know, you know what you do and don't want to do. I don't like to do things out of obligation. I'm like, oh, sounds like a fun birthday party. We're not coming. Happy birthday. Oh, I wish I could do that. That's something that I'm learning how to do is just like saying, no, I always then have that guilt. It's like, it's like that innate, like guilt within like, oh, but I don't want to hurt their feelings. No, I think, I think, I think saying yes, when you're, um, when you don't really want to do it or not giving an answer is actually meaner than being saying no. Like, you know how fun a small birthday party is going to be, you know, how fun, like different dinner events could be. And you know how important it is to have like a good RSVP count. Cause that person that says yes. And then cancels at the last minute worse. Oh, it totally you've is. you've already cooked the turkey, you know? Yes, you've already <laughs> like scheduled everything. Oh, that's, that's the worst. It. Like when yes. two people canceled on my wedding, which was in Hawaii, by the way, the day before we were flying out, I'm like, what? Yeah, no, Could I totally you? get it. Yeah. Like emergencies <laughs> are one thing, but like, so that I'm, I just reframe it. I'm not being mean. If I say no, I'm being kind. 
Ah, they're saying no and not flaking at the last minute. I like that. And then lastly, what would be your number one survival tip right now for all changes to parents, not just moms? What is your number one survival tip right now with navigating everything going on? In pandemic, yeah. And everything going on. Oh, that's a really good question. I think like go super easy on yourself. We're not in a typical situation. This is really hard and it's going to have compounding effects right? I like my mental and cognitive abilities are not there. Even though I have childcare again, I am relearning and struggling with stuff. So don't expect, well, it's hard, you know, it's fine to have expectations, but don't expect the world right now. Like just do the next smallest possible thing. And at a more tangible level, I will say that when I stopped watching TV for a week, it felt really peaceful, which surprised me. And my husband and I stopped drinking alcohol, which we got much better sleep. And we did it on accident. It wasn't this big plan. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to stop drinking. But we just, I bought like 12 cases of seltzer instead of two. And so we had so much seltzer, we started drinking it. And then 30 days later, we were like, oh my gosh, we don't feel so bad. So, but I also have no judgment because I've been in places in my life where that glass of wine at the end of the day is the only thing that may help me get through. So like you do you take it easy and you can cut back on some things, lower your expectations and maybe just like that noisy TV or that glass of wine, like put them down and go to bed. Cause we're all so darn tired. Amen. Yeah. So, thank you so much for joining today. Where can we find you? I live in two places all on the internet. Startupparent.com is my company. Sarah K Peck is my personal website. I write on my personal website every week, a new letter is really fun. And I actually have a whole book. I you, you asked the question earlier. I have a whole book on saying no, where my friends ask me like, how do you say no? Uh, and I, I'll usually text them. I'm like, Oh, for this situation, use this. So there's 27 phrases and scripts for how to say no. And you can find it at my website. I'm totally going to link that in the show notes for sure. And then also you guys, she has an amazing podcast, startup parent. So the first time I will never forget, I listened to your podcast, startup pregnant for the very first time. I remember I was walking through target. Isn't that (laughs) weird? Like I have that vivid memory of like running across it and being like, and I was pregnant at the time. And I was like, Oh, this is interesting. And I started listening to it. So I found you probably, I don't know, two and a half or three years ago. That's amazing. Thank you for telling me that. I like totally forgot. I never mentioned that because we met in a Facebook group, but you know, (laughs) that's amazing. Yeah. So check out all her episodes. You go back so far. They're all great, but thank you for, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. What a treat. I'm glad we finally did this. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Mommy's on a Call. Your support means the absolute world to me. You can find the show notes for this episode and other goodies over at mommiesonacall.com. And if you enjoyed this episode or have gotten value from the podcast, I would be so grateful if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review so that we can reach and empower more moms all over the world together. Thank you so much again, Mommy Pod, and I will see you here next time. 